G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You're on Vision Christian Radio. It's Neil with you, the Monday edition of 2020. A conversation shortly. We'll open our talkback lines and invite you into. No doubt you've got a thought or two around being paid to work in your local church or into a parachurch ministry or even you might even extend that to charities. Well, we're going to take a deeper look at serving God in a ministry role with your local church. Mostly we think, I'm too busy with work or business to take ministry responsibility in a local church. Well, our special guest today runs a small irrigation business while leading a church. Andrew Hamilton says it may be surprising, but he's loving life and finding the combination of business and ministry to have huge benefits. Andrew Hamilton cast a compelling vision for bivocational mission and ministry in his new book, Predicting the Future is Bivocational. He says bivocational mission and ministry should be taken much more seriously in our increasingly secular landscape. Andrew Hamilton's book is called The Future is Bivocational, Shaping Christian Leaders for the Church of Tomorrow, and it's been shortlisted for this year's Australian Christian Book of the Year Awards, those awards being announced on the 31st of August in Melbourne. But Andrew Hamilton, a special welcome along to 2020. G'day, how are you going, Neil? And everyone listening? Very well, Andrew. And first of all, congratulations. Being shortlisted for the Australian Christian Book of the Year is quite a, an accolade in itself. So uh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like... Uh, when you hear your own, when you see your own name there, or you hear your own voice from radio, you go, "Wow, that's actually me." So yeah, a little bit, a little bit surprised in one sense, and yet uh, in another sense, I've been writing for a long time, so it's actually really nice. It's nice to have some sense of uh, affirmation for the work that you know I've done for many, many years. So yeah, it's good. Really happy. Take us back to motivations here for writing a book like this, because you have your own story to tell about your own ministry and working career. Give us your insight here. Yeah, look, I, I've been wanting to write a book and I had a few different things on the go. So as I've been writing for a long time, I love writing and, and I had a few different things on the go. But one day I was, I was just really just realised that uh, I'd found myself in that sweet spot of life um, where the work I was doing and the ministry I was doing was just sort of flowing together so nicely and, and I didn't actually start out to be bivocational, that was never my intention but but I had a realisation one day that this was actually far more effective than my days of being a full-time pastor in terms of how I wanted to do a mission in the world and out of that I started just to jot down a few thoughts and you know before you knew it you had a you had a draft and uh, as I look back now it was a very embarrassing draft but it was a draft and uh, and then it sort of gradually formed up from there. Let's talk about having an ambition for a moment because uh, this is interesting and I know that there'll be lots of listeners who might have a, a thought or two to offer around this, but 
having an ambition, and I imagine there's something connected with a calling, something of a calling from God, some sort of, you know, I've had some revelation about where my future lies, and it's in serving God, and in some sense, in order to do that full-time, often you need uh, to have some sort of a wage or salary that actually supports that effort. But an ambition to be a full-time minister. This is something that a lot of church leaders actually do Mm. sow that vision, sow that seed with church members because, you know what, there's a succession plan. There needs to be lots more leaders in church life. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. around ambition? Yeah, well, the Bible talks about godly ambition and selfish ambition, doesn't it? So I guess distinguishing between the two is very, very difficult. That's, That's what I think. You know, I think it's very hard to know when when I want something and, and when God wants something and what the overlap is between those two. But I think, I don't even know it's ambition that drives us to be full-time church leaders. I think it's, uh, I think it's just the, the way it's always, the way we've experienced it. I'm going to say the way it's always been, but it's not the way it's always been. It's just the way we've experienced it. So, so we expect this to be our norm. Um, so I, I guess I want to challenge that. I want to say, I think if, if our goal is simply to manage a church community, pastor them, care for them, teach them, do those things, then maybe maybe a full-time pastor is the way to go if your church is big enough. But if our goal is more focused on uh, connecting with Australian people who aren't part of the church, then I reckon we should explore some different, different ways of doing it. And I can hear what you're saying there. Uh, Oftentimes, meeting the needs of the existing church may actually determine that you need to have someone who's in a paid capacity to do that. But if you're in an Mm. outreach focus, maybe expecting to have a paid capacity to do that might not be as uh, not be as solid a foundation. Is that what you're saying here? Sort of. I think I think we need both. So you know, I think we need our. You know, Ephesians speaks of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We, we need our pastors and teachers in our churches. There are people who, who need care, um, but they don't need care caring for necessarily by uh, the pastor. They need pastoral people to be able to do that. So my, my sense would be if the average church in Australia is 70 to 100 people, I don't think you need five days a week to do the kind of pastoral care that's required. Um, I think, you know, two or three days a week is plenty. And uh, and if you've got someone doing that two or three days a week and helping other people be you know, be trained in that, then you've got space to use the, the rest of your resource to do something that is not inwardly focused, perhaps more outwardly focused. And you raise such such an important issue here. Uh, if your church is big enough, and uh, I'm not sure if you have any uh, the latest statistics and those sorts of things about the average size of a local church. Um, no, you know, I don't. Yeah. Do you know? Look, uh, look. It depends on the on the figures and who and what year. I'm trying to remember, but you know, fifty yeah. to sixty people is actually the average size church. And that might not be big enough to actually, you know, even if people are being generous in their giving, that may not be big enough to actually afford a full-time minister in a church that big. So it does depend on whether your church is big enough and what your church can afford to do. Uh, So that's actually an important important foundation to have in place. I mean, uh, you've got to ask that logical question, haven't you? Definitely. And, And it probably depends too where your church wants to put its focus. Um, you know, it's, it's quite, I guess, pastoral care in a lot of ways is, is friendship. Um, it's standing alongside people. And, and those who are more of a pastoral equal side, it's more than that. Now, I understand it is more than that. Sometimes there, 
there is a skill that required that is involved in pastoring that look it's not really my skill my, my wife has it but it's not really mine but some people have that skill so i think there is a need for it but i think we can just overplay that hand and and historically for probably the last oh seven hundred years we've overplayed that hand ever since uh, we were made uh, the center of the universe you know the, the church became the center of the uh, center of town and, and Christendom had its way. I think what we're seeing now is the unraveling of Christendom, the unraveling of an era when the church was uh, at center stage in the community and, and the church now is very marginalized and we have to think differently both about how we exist and about how we lead. No doubt you've thought a lot of things through quite deeply, Andrew. Uh, if you think about church and a calling, and a gifting, and, uh, you know, you're drawn because you feel a compulsion from God to actually be a part of your local church. Uh, That doesn't necessarily make it a career, but for some people, uh, in order to actually move forward, you've got to think of your church involvement as career, haven't you? How do do you balance that idea of of servant role or career role? Okay, I think career in Christian ministry is a dirty word. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. I think vocation is, is what we should be looking for. Um, and, and that has many, many expressions and many connotations. But if, if vocation comes from the Latin vocare, meaning calling, then I think we should be looking towards who is it God has called us to be and, and, and what is he calling us to do? Career has more the intonations of a career pathway and you know, finding your way to the climbing the ladder um, and look, I, I probably lived that way in the early part of my my ministry as a, as a youth pastor and, and as a young senior leader. Um, I was on a career trajectory, and I look at it now, I think, oh, I was so full of myself. You know, I, it's it's not that it's wrong to have aspirations, but I think I was I was driven by uh, you know the career idea more than the vocation. And you raise a really important point too because uh, you're speaking from a time when you're feeling more mature in the way you can reflect on these mm-hmm. things, but you have young people at that younger age and they are looking to say, uh, what will my career be? And they might be choosing a professional career, they might be becoming a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant, uh, or they might be mm-hmm. serving in the public service. It could be something that they are contemplating and yet they know that there is something within them, something that shapes them according to a scriptural view, as having a gift that needs to be expressed in church and so therefore looking to how they actually uh, move ahead in a career. So, And and you might have some young people who are saying, well, I'm expecting a full-time wage if I'm going to move that way. If people think I'm gifted (laughs) enough this way, you've no doubt thought through these sorts of things pretty deeply. Yeah, look, I think the, the idea of calling is still what I love speaking with people about, young people middle-aged people who are questioning where they're at, older people who are kind of wondering, what do I do? I'm in the semi-retired phase, I guess. That's what my physio calls me. He says I'm semi-retired, um, <laughs> which is quite funny. I never realised, but that's how he sees me. So I think at different stages of life, people go through different things. And So my kids, uh, one's studying physio and the other one's a nurse. And what I like about the conversations we have is, is yes, the nurse is looking to, to say, how can I continue to improve my skills and, and, and what I do. But she's listening to the voice of God in that and saying, and, and where might where may God take me? What might he want me to do? I guess, you know, uh, too often we are just simply driven by uh, the, the upward trajectory. Um, and I think there's a time to say no to that. 
and and we're driven by driven by dollars. Let's be honest. Sometimes you get you get a bigger, better, you get a more, you get a more responsible job, you get a higher paying job, and you know, don't get me started on this. But I think sometimes we just overcommit in our in our debt, and we have to you know take that higher paying job, and we get locked in for endless years into something that we probably maybe shouldn't be doing. Um, yeah. That's a really interesting one. Uh, get into a career, uh, get into debt, and then that basically yep. can cancel out your opportunity to serve in a vocational calling. That's a really powerful point. We want to see the church grow. Uh, we want to see numbers increasing. In, in order to do that, you've got to have increasing leaders. Uh, your thoughts here on on how we staff the church in the years ahead. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think we do want to see the church grow. Um, I think one of the challenges has been that we have tended to see the church grow by a a better communicator coming in or a better band coming in and us pilfering a few from the church down the road who can't do quite as good a job of of what we do. So I think, unfortunately, that's been too much of our church growth over the last 50 years. What would be ideal would be if we, we actually trained people to be missionaries in the Western world and sent them out, and church growth happened because of that. So that's what I'd be hoping for, um, more so than uh, the transfer growth that so often shapes what we do. So we don't necessarily think that transfer growth is a good thing because, uh, as you say, you know, uh, a family or two leave one church and they join another. One feels as though their numbers have decreased. Another says, oh, we must be doing something good uh, because the numbers are growing. Uh, So transfer growth, not the ideal. So organic growth is going to be the way that the church ought to grow. And do you think that'll happen with paid employed staff to make that happen because sometimes you do need some special skills in this area but uh, what are your thoughts here around uh, growth that uh, that is organic and how the, the need for paying people might actually evolve as things continue to grow yeah i think that's a good way of putting it the need for paid staff may evolve as things continue to grow i think if we start with a with a perception of ourselves as missionaries in a very secular uh, quite not even apathetic these days, even more hostile culture. Then we have to ask the question: you know, How do how do we first off, you know, engage with the community we're part of? And as we see growth, and as we see people come to faith, um, generally not at a rapid rate in Australia, sadly, but that's just reality. Then I think we can ask: Who do we need to staff to actually um, both meet the needs of those people and continue the work that we're doing in the community? So I think, you know, we, we don't just want to put a pastor in and say, OK, let's let's get a pastor who will come and do all things, will teach us, will lead us, will will care for us. Um, no one's omnicompetent. Um, I think we need a range of people to be able to do those things. And the beauty of the whole bivocational idea is that let's assume a church only has five days worth of income to give. Um, you don't You don't spend it all on one guy. You spend it on perhaps someone to lead the church. You spend it on a youth worker, or a kids worker, someone to do pastoral care, admin, all those kind of things. So we can we can get people with real skills in the area rather than expecting one person to have it all. 
You know, the bigger the church gets, and, you know, if you talked about that uh, 50 or 60 in a typical average-sized church, let's just say say yeah. between 50 and 100, uh, that a lot of mm-hmm. people listening to our conversation uh, today, they're in those churches. And so uh, to for a church to grow from that 50 to 100 and then from 100 to 200, the bigger the church gets, the more sophisticated things become. And so there's regulations, and, and then there's the yep. acquired wisdom that comes from the leaders. And so somehow or you want to retain that wisdom and you want to retain that understanding and even that business acumen around meeting the regulations of church life, this sort of puts, you know, puts pressure on the church then, doesn't it, to actually pay someone in a pastoral leadership role? Yeah, that whole uh, need for compliance and meeting legislation, that's just a, it's a fairly newish thing in church life that has actually thrown a really heavy demand on our people. Um, you know, this is where I think perhaps churches can come together or denominations can help out with that stuff and, and perhaps lift some of that load off the church itself. I realise there's always going to be a bit of it on the church, but, you know, we can, we can have that weigh heavily or we can perhaps wear it lightly. So I'd be encouraging churches to wear it lightly as much as we still need to wear it. Um, but your question about, uh, you know, once we grow, yeah, that's one of the questions I, I ponder is should we be aspiring towards being bigger and bigger or should we be aspiring towards getting to a point where um, we're still a healthy community but we're able to birth a new community and able to birth a new community and so on so maybe maybe the goal ought not be 500 people all meeting together in one space but the goal ought to be five communities of 100 or 10 or 50 um, that, that are connected I think there are things you can do with 50 people that you can't do with 500 and the things you can do with 500 you can't do with 50 so it's not that one number is better than the other but I wonder what I guess I'm wondering what the optimum size may be for a church. Yes, well, uh, optimum size uh, for the person who wants to be paid for what they do might have a certain uh, numbers size to it. And then, and then of course, there's the certain uh, giving amount, too, that people are prepared to give. And, you know, a lot of churches will say, uh, we're hopeful that our uh, people will give a tithe to God, uh, a tenth of what they earn. And so there should be a... Uh, a pool of money that in, encourages the growth of the church when that happens. As things grow, there's more money, there's more opportunity for that sort of uh, that sort of uh, paid work. Uh, mostly, we think though, uh, I'm too busy with work or business to take ministry responsibility in a local church. Have you come across this, and uh, and how do you how do you think of you know people who've obviously got some gifting? Um, but they're busy with their career and you can see that they've got some gifting and, you know, you recognize that, you know, if they understand a calling and vocation, uh, that something ought to happen here. What are your thoughts about people who are already busy with work and business? Yeah, I guess the question would be if God has called them to work in their workspace or in their business, then my responsibility as their pastor, as their leader, would be to equip them to be the most effective person they could be in that space. If God's calling them to serve somewhere within the church community, then my job is to challenge them to consider how they can do that. Now, some jobs allow for you know, part-time work. You know, you can be a teacher part-time. You can work in a cafe part-time. Most of the guys who are doing you know, engineering jobs or government jobs, a lot of them can't get part-time um, employment, so they're kind of stuck. Um, but certainly for some people, um, there is opportunity to say, you know, give two or three days a week to the church 
and to serve in that way. And look, I, I think if people do that and it becomes their job, if you want to put, put it in those terms, they ought to be paid something for it too. Let's come back to some biblical foundations. Uh, you've thought through uh, the issues around this, and I can't help but think that uh, the greatest apostle, uh, that some would say, is the Apostle Paul, and he was a tent maker. Uh, he was mm. bivocational. Uh, is he your prime example, or are there lots of other examples of how you can point to a scriptural foundation for how you think about being paid for the ministry work you do? Yeah, I think he's the classic example, isn't he? You know, he's the one we use most of the time. And, you know, certainly throughout history, there have been plenty of people who have been bivocational. But, but yeah, in Scripture, certainly Paul was that guy. And it seemed that, you know, what he'd been called to do to travel around different communities, to work in different places, um, his, his business allowed him to do that. He was able to go to Corinth, you know, set up a business, work for a while, travel on to Ephesus, set up the same business. Um, I think it's a fantastic picture. I, I had no idea why Paul, why Paul was bivocational initially until I started my own business. And I realised that by running the business I was running, I was involved in the lives of the people in our community far more than I was as a pastor. I was in their houses, I was in, in their lives, I was having conversations with them that I would never have had as a pastor. Um, so I think, I think Paul was onto something. As I think we have seen bivocational ministry as, as the second best option. I think Paul was saying, hey, look, guys, here's a way to do it. If you really want to be effective in knowing your community, this, this works well. You know, I want to invite listeners to join in the conversation because sometimes we think of the growing technology that we all have opportunity to access these days and our capacity to work from home and uh, you can work in even remote communities uh, and be paid for what you do and have time to serve God in whatever capacity, maybe around a local church or in some level of mission. But work from home actually creates, doesn't it? a tent-maker opportunity for so many more people who didn't have this opportunity before. Mm. Yeah, you're right. sure does. gives people a space. You know, if you can work from home, you eliminate however many hours of commuting that you, you know, previously have had to, you know, had to do. And you're in your community. You can have lunch with people. You can catch people before or after work. You can go for walks. Um, certainly the potential is huge if you get to work from home and you really want to be part of your own community. Okay, and uh, so there's just uh, some scenarios and things here. Uh, supposing your church grows, maybe there's you know revival in Australia. A lot of people say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the church was growing and uh, there was a move of God, amazing things would happen. There wouldn't necessarily be a lot extra paid staff immediately around that, would there? So in some ways, you've got to work out what sort of skill and gift you bring to church life in your own calling and vocation and where that can fit without payment at all. Would that be one way of actually thinking about how things happen as things grow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, unfortunately, over the last 50 years particularly, we've, we've gone from being churches that were very much uh, led and staffed by volunteers to churches that are very much led and staffed by paid people. And I, I see huge capacity for people to, to give more to the, to, to the life of the church and to the community um, in, in the current setting. But it's, it's not in our imagination. These days we think, hey, kids' ministry is growing, we need to employ someone. Or, hey, um, we've got all these admin headaches, we need to pay someone. That's the way we think. In the old days, we had a secretary, we had a Sunday school superintendent, we had all those things that, 
people just spend hours on. Um, but it's not in our imagination at the moment. Andrew, let's talk about the change in our society. And, you know, we'll often mm. talk about how things are deepening in a secularised sense, uh, in a culture mm. that's becoming more hostile to Christian faith. Uh, what are your thoughts here about, you know, who's responsible and what we all do to get involved uh, in church life and church growth? Yeah, look, I think there's no question that our culture now has moved from indifferent towards us to at times hostile. And uh, that's a challenge to engage with. And I think, you know, our old methods of doing evangelism, um, of, of simply expecting that presenting some Bible verses and, and, and leading people towards Jesus would, would lead them to faith. You know, those days have gone. Um, I remember when I was 18, I, I walked around my suburb. I'm 59, 59 now. But when I was 18, I walked around my suburb with uh, with my Bible and, and some Bible verses memorised and wanted to speak to people about faith and lead them to faith. Now, that was, you know, 40 years ago when Australia, by and large, considered themselves a Christian country. Even then, we weren't really a Christian country. We thought that way. We prayed in school. We said the Lord's Prayer. We did those sort of things. And back then, people had some sense of the Christian story in their in their psyche. These days, that story is not in the hard drive. So we're actually starting from scratch. We're actually building uh, building that story again and trying to lead people towards... I think back then, we were leading people back to something they'd forgotten. Now we're trying to help people. We're trying to introduce people to something they've never, never encountered before, which I think is a whole different game. We haven't said anything about ages of church, and there are a lot of congregations with ageing members and uh, in some sense here you might even think of church leaders coming from the retiree set uh, taking the pressure off paying wages at all uh, but in, if you unless you're going to have re- renewal uh, you've got to be able to also support those churches that are reaching out to younger generations and that might be an area where it's going to be actually more costly to reach a younger generation did you, have you thought through those age uh, issues definitely so, you know, when you introduced me, you introduced me as a pastor of a church. We're actually in a transition where we've stepped down from leading the churches that we were part of. So so I say to people, 2022 is the year I led two churches, ran two businesses, and wrote two books. And uh, 2023 is the year we've handed those two churches on to two, two younger guys. Because I think that, you know, if, if I keep leading and, and, and my wife and I keep leading the church, we're going to look around one day and go, well, we're 70 and, and everyone around us is... Is 60, 70, we're all going to die soon. We've handed them on to younger people who bring a different way of thinking to the leadership. And so my challenge to church leaders would be to get out of the way. Um, you know, it's not, not that we're not required, not at all, but we're required in a different way. I think we're, we're not required to be the, the front face of the church. We're required to support the younger leaders who bring uh, an understanding of the culture as it is today, and we're required to support them. So passing on the baton, uh, passing on the flame, this actually is where older leaders need to be thinking about the future. And uh, as you might be one older leader passing on the flame, you might be passing on that flame to three younger leaders. And so therefore you're actually stimulating growth for the future, aren't you? So in some sense, finding young people, and that might have a price tag attached to it because they're all looking for 
career pursuits. Is that something that you ought to be really mindful of as you're thinking of passing on the baton to a younger generation? Yeah, I think uh, it probably depends on how they're formed. So I'm seeing fewer uh, younger pastors saying, this is my career. And, and certainly the ones we've been working with more open to saying, this is what God has called me to. Um, and the church I'm leading can sustain, you know, two or three days a week of income. What am I going to do to support myself in the other two or three days? And fortunately now, I think we're moving from that just being a uh, too bad, how sad situation to a situation where people are saying, what can I do that will actually fund me and, and give me freedom and, 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 and serve the mission of the church at the same time? So when I ran my own business, one of the beauties of it, and I'm obviously still running my own business, when I, did, when I do that, I, I make enough money that if the church can't pay me, I can, I can serve them anyway. Um, which, which also means that in that space, sometimes people are forced by the church to, to say, do, behave in ways that they wouldn't normally do. So we're not compelled to preach certain things and we're not, we're not uh, made to not speak about certain things. Because we have freedom, we have freedom of income to be able to do that. We're not reliant on them in that sense. And it takes humility, doesn't it, actually, to be in that mindset because there's an issue yeah. of identity here because some people feel as though they are important if they've got the pay packet uh, which matches their area of gifting. It's, it's a humility issue when you actually rise to the occasion and fulfil your gifting even though you might not be guaranteed the pay packet at the end of the week. Is that one way of looking at it? And how do you see things around identity here? If you're going to look for biblical examples and the Apostle Paul as a tent maker, clearly there's a really good role model there, isn't there? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think Paul ever... Paul never says, hey, God made me to make tents. Um, I don't think he ever <laughs> saw, saw making tents were like the, is the greatest thing in the world. But I reckon he made enough money out of making tents that he could not only support his own ministry, but he could also support others. He, could, uh, he was free to travel. He was free to give money away. Um, so I think you know, the beauty of business is that those of us who are in business can actually make a reasonable amount of money so we can both support ourselves and support others. So well, last year I, I started another business um, in mobile caravan way. And that's kind of a very niche business. What it means is that uh, we, for people who are travellers, they need to know the weights of their vehicles. Now, I've got the capacity to do that and to earn money through doing that. Now, what that allows us to do, one of the visions for that was that a whole bunch of our country towns don't have pastors. We could literally go to a country town, set up there for a while, earn money off our business while we help the church you know, move forward for a few months. So that's, a, that's an idea of how we can do things going forwards. In fact, if you want to be paid to do the ministry that you know you're called to do, I love when you say, you know, what did God make me to do? And it probably mm. wasn't, uh, as for the Apostle Paul, to make tents. It made him, God made him to do the calling that God has called him to. So you, what you're saying here is actually uh, if you've got a church of 50 people that can't afford a full-time pastor, you may actually be uh, growing multiple churches of 50 people and eventually somewhere along the way uh, you're going to be such a necessity that you have to be actually paid full time to do what you do because that's an uh, that's an absolute uh, uh, an, a, you know that's a, a mandate thing that you've got something's got to happen here so so you keep on growing and the opportunities will eventually uh, will eventually catch up with you 
Yes, um, certainly that happens. Although I don't know that uh, don't know that Paul ever made it his goal to be fully funded by the church. So I think I think we've come from a mindset of uh, theological education, which leads to a career in ministry, which leads to ultimately full time uh, ministry. Whereas I just wonder if we could get into that theological system and tinker with it a bit, and say why, why don't we ask? You know, what else can you do? You're still called to be a teacher. You're still called to be a pioneer or, or to be a pastor. But how can you do that? And at the same time, um, not just rely on the church for... Let's face it, most of our churches aren't tithing. We know that. If we're going to rely on 10 people who tithe, we're going to be disappointed. But if we can get to a point where we can say, look, let's encourage our church to be generous and let's also find a way to support ourselves. Maybe we, we don't need to force the, the, the paid full-time gig anymore. Andrew, are you with us? Yeah, did I drop yep, out? Yep, just dropped out for a, a moment there. Hey, oh, there, there's, there's a thought, isn't there, uh, in missionary circles, and there are missionary organisations, and they have their own ways of getting a pay packet for people who are serving in international contexts, and if you're going to be serving a a you know a tribal people in a remote jungle in some other part of the world somehow or other you're not going to be getting a support from local people there uh, there's a certain sense in which a, a lot of mission minded people have raised their own support is there room yeah. for more of that personal support raising if you are feeling as though you need to be paid to do ministry I think there is absolutely and uh, 20 years ago we planted a church in the northern suburbs of Perth and and we took four other families with us. We literally sold blocks of land, sold houses in the hills of Perth, bought blocks of land, built houses, and started over again as a missionary community. And to that end, we raised personal support. We actually asked people to support us. And it, it did happen, but it was very, very difficult because people are not used to doing that for, for Australian people. If we'd gone to Africa or gone to China, maybe, maybe it would have been easier, but we're not used to it in our context, so it's it's quite difficult for people to get a hold of that idea. There's a certain entrepreneurialness about what you're talking about there, and that that's a good topic for another day even just to pick up on, you know, how you get those things started. And everybody makes some level of sacrifice and, uh, you know, selling some assets to group those together and be able to afford to do something that expands the kingdom of God. Hey, but there's another really significant issue, and I know some people are plagued by this a little, uh, when you mm. undertake any further study and prepare for ministry, uh, a theological education, and sometimes that comes around Bible, sometimes it's around theology, sometimes it's around ministry, and those are different sort of disciplines that people train for. But a theological education doesn't always lead to a career. And, uh, and mm. you know, at the risk of uh, even turning people off a theological education here, there's obviously a need for it. But what are your thoughts around preparing for ministry? Because you don't know what lies ahead and you have some aspiration to serve God, some calling on your life, but you know you've got to be equipped to actually do things effectively. But there's no guarantees at the end when you're presented with that certificate. <laughs> no, there's no guarantees. And there's, but there's just no knowing where life will take you even. Um, so, so for me, I, mean, I did not think I would complete two university degrees and find myself working in someone's backyard digging holes and installing sprinklers. You know, I had no, no notion at all that that would happen. In fact, if anything, I had a bit of a snobby attitude. Well, I thought you know, tradesman work was, was, was not for people like me. I was above that. So to be doing this was quite a surprise. 
But what it, as you say, there's a bit of humility involved, but there was also just a recognition that God achieved his ends in different ways. And look, my, my theological education is not wasted. I would say to anyone who's going down that route, theological education is never wasted. In fact, we need really, really good theological thinkers in this secular world to be able to understand how we communicate the Christian story to Australian people today. I just think the game has changed and we need good thinkers to be able to do that. We need the best thinkers. And so for those who are contemplating a theological education in any of those different disciplines we're talking about, Bible or theology or ministry, absolute essential for growing a uh, ministry with integrity into the future. Hey, we're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Bruce is in Maruya in New South Wales. Hi, Bruce. Hey, yeah. Good, Bruce. What are your thoughts? Uh, I've got a question. If you're a minister and you're working and you've got an older congregation, you're going to get called out a lot of times to do hospital visitations, do funerals and everything like that. How do you manage? That's an interesting question around flexibility. Andrew, your thoughts for Bruce? Yeah, good question. Look, I think it depends on what your job is to how you manage that, but I think uh, we're not the only paid pastoral staff are not the only people who can do hospital visits and we're not the only people who can do pastoral care. Maybe funerals, yeah, there's, a, there's probably a certain uh, degree to which the pastor does them. But I feel like, you know, certain people expect, inverted commas, the pastor to show up when we really need people with the gift of pastoring more than, more than the title. So I would say we delegate to the congregation and we change the expectations of the congregation so that it's not all on one person. Bruce, does that answer your question there? No, it doesn't, because if you're the minister of a congregation, you're responsible for that congregation. You're responsible for call-outs all during the night as well, and you're responsible during the day. And when you've got a funeral, it can be it can interfere with a lot of things, but you as the minister, you should be doing that. And that's so a really good now, point, please? Bruce, uh, but there's a but in there. Uh, if no one's paying you to do that, uh, why? how could you actually uh, continue in that role? So this level of flexibility, and we're, I think we're talking in a small church context here, uh, is a very important one. And, uh, and so there is an expectation that people have and come back to you, Andrew, here, the expectation of people of what the pastor is going to be available for, and they may know that you are bivocational, you're not putting in a full-time work effort in church life, and yet sometimes that will be demanded, won't it? Um, it may be demanded. I think you can, you can reshape people's expectations. So when I was employed by the church two days a week, I feel like the church has, has to say, okay, we cannot expect you to behave as if you're employed full time. So what I said to the church was, here are the things I'm gifted at. I can lead you. I can look at where we're going. I can teach you and I'll meet with men. Those are my strengths. And that's what I'll spend the bulk of my two days doing. It's not to say I won't do other things when I can, but that's where I'll spend the bulk of my time. Um, so that meant that you know, I actively shaped the church's expectation towards what they would, you know, they would see me doing. So I had very few evening call-outs and very few daytime call-outs because people knew that I was working. Um, if they needed someone, they'd, they'd call someone else, call someone within the church. 
we had a church community with people who were quite capable of, you know, they had gifts in pastoral care and gifts in, in various areas. So, so they were able to go and do the work that perhaps would sometimes be assigned to the pastor. Bruce and Maria, thank you so much for your call and even running short of time here. And, and I suspect there's probably even misunderstanding in a lot of Christian believers who uh, warm the pew or sit in church on a Sunday as to the sort of work that actually is demanding on the life of a pastor. I mean, sometimes people describe pastors, they're the ones, uh, you know, uh, they hatch them match them and dispatch them and uh, so far as the hatching and the matching and uh, all those things that happen around uh, marrying people and uh, of course end of life issues uh, when you're not only leading a funeral but also the pastoral care around all of those different dimensions not to mention all of the other elements of church life pastors can be incredibly busy and I guess you've got to be able to balance uh, all the expectations that everyone has, the people and uh, what your own expectations might be. Balance is going to be something you've got to be flexible with here. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are times when you know, it, it, pastoral life ebbs and flows. So, you know, one week you might spend, if you're employed two days a week, you might spend four days one week. You might you might spend one day the following. So I think we can ebb and flow with that. Um, I guess I guess what, what I would be encouraging churches to do is to look at who they've appointed and what they're gifted for rather than just expecting one person man or woman to do it all because I think that's where that's where our old model I think has really struggled um, so if it was all down to me I'm not the world's greatest pastoral carer um, if you're relying on me for pastoral care I'm, I'm probably going to disappoint you um, I can lead you I can teach you I'm, I'm good with men and I'm good at friendship but pastoral care not so much so it would make sense that I would train someone else to do it or equip someone else to do that and free them to do it. So it's about equipping because uh, this is why we need the body of Christ. Uh, not everybody is gifted in every area and there are challenging things in the growth of every church. And so in some sense, you've got to be flexible and you've got to be entrepreneurial about how you can grow your local church uh, with the leadership and with the dollars that are available and effectively and wisely and as a good steward, use those uh, for the extension of the kingdom. Andrew Hamilton, your new book, The Future is Bivocational. Shaping Christian Leaders for the Church of Tomorrow for listeners who are thinking, you know what, this is right where I need to be right now. Um, you know, here's, here's a good little opportunity. Uh, so if you're picking out the one reason why a listener might go online right now and buy your book, uh, what would you say? This is an important book for? It's important for those of us who actually want to connect with Australian people as missionaries. So if we see ourselves in a culture that's uh, apathetic towards us or hostile and, and we're asking the question how do we lead our friends towards Christ um, I think we need to rethink how we do church, how we do leadership and how we engage Fabulous and look special honour to you because uh, people who work bivocationally uh, you are juggling a lot of balls in the air and a special honour to you, Andrew, in the career that you've had and now you're passing on wisdom to a new generation around being a bivocational minister of the gospel. Let me too mention uh, that uh, you know the business you're just moving out of and handing on uh, will be Brighton Reticulation and uh, brightonreticulation.com. Is, uh, is that okay to give you a website here? Yes, certainly, certainly. <laughs> That's, I'm, in the, I'm in the process of selling that business to another young guy who's a 
who's a pastor and who's going to be bivocational also, so it's really, really good. Right, and this is uh, an interesting thing too. If you build a business and you know how it works bivocationally, you might not be only handing on the flame or the baton with your ministry, but you might also be handing on the baton and the flame of a bivocational business that you can fit in and get that balance around your ministry and earning a, a living at the same time. You mentioned a second business in weighing caravans. How does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, I've got four big scales. They're like 20 kilos each. We put them under the wheels of a caravan. You drive your caravan up and we get the weight of it. So for most people who drive who, who, who caravan, they need to know their weights. It's really important both from a legal and an insurance perspective and a safety perspective. So, so that's just a business where I literally carry those scales around all day and, and I can go on uh, probably, you know, I could go and weigh three or four people in a day and earn probably twice as much as I would as a pastor in a day. So that's one of those little uh, opportunities that's there for, you know, just plus it's a way to, you know, support country, as I said, support country churches. Absolutely fabulous. And so to connect with Andrew and uh, to get a hold of his book, I think you just simply go to an online bookseller and you'll be able to find it online. But you can connect directly with Andrew Hamilton, who's the author of this new book, The Future is Bivocational, Shaping Christian Leaders for the Church of Tomorrow. Uh, You can go to Brighton reticulation.com Probably better better than going there go to backyardmissionary.com Ah good okay and that's something I must have missed out backyardmissionary.com That's it that's right so that's the uh, that's the whole paradigm backyard missionary we're missionaries in our own backyard how do we do that effectively and being a backyard missionary is where everybody starts it's an equal starting ground backyardmissionary.com Andrew Hamilton, just wonderful getting your insights today. Thank you so much for taking that time to share those thoughts with listeners today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Been really good to speak with you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.